all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 280 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the 18 people shaking hands at a round table episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that um, you can actually put 18 people around a round table and let them shake hands with each other in non-crossing ways. And you can get this done in 280 different ways. Yes. And with that wonderful little bit of twisty knowledge of shaking hands with 18 people at a round table, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. How are you doing, Matthew? Well, you know, I am doing okay. I understand, though, that you're probably pretty frustrated having... Technical difficulties. Apparently, Microsoft hates you right now. Yes, for the past 30 minutes. The 30 minutes that we would normally use as pre-show, I was trying to figure out why... Normal voice recording software we use. Would not. (laughs) It wouldn't let me log in on either three devices that I normally use to log in at a given time for anything else but recording the show, so it was a little bit frustrating. So I had to create a brand new account. It's frustrating for sure. I know I have been there before. Um, I've never had to go so far as to create a brand new account. No, I take that back. Like, Like 10 years ago, I think I did actually have to create a brand new account. So, yeah. I feel your pain, truly. But we're here now. We are here. We're here now. But it's not nearly as bad as a birthday. I know. I heard. Make sure I got this right. You hit the official 3-0, or were you already 30? I hit 30 last Friday. So the day of my party was uh, Saturday. Okay. If you can call it a party, uh, there were multiple cancellations at the last minute because a lot of people out here suck. But luckily, <laughs> luckily, I have a fantastic, more significant SO who actually took the time and made a delicious birthday dinner and put up a bunch of like decorations and stuff, trying to make it all nice and fun since on her 30th birthday, I proposed to her. So she felt obligated, <laughs> which is pretty nice. Congratulations. Welcome to the uh, decade number three of life. Why, thank you. I, I guess, depending on how you want to look at it, it's, you know, I guess like could be the fourth decade if you count the first, you know, zero through nine as like decade one, depending on how you want to look at that. But needless to say, you've been on this rock for quite a while. That's true. Well, I mean, I think I would count zero through nine as the first decade because life moved so slow during that period of time. <laughs> and I would consider being in the stomach of, uh, of the mother being like, that's like the prequel decade, you know, that that's like the prequel trilogy of life. Gotcha. Yes. The cellular prequel trilogy, as it were. How was your 30th birthday, though? Like, whenever you did have your 30th birthday, was it something you looked forward to, or did you just not care? 
No, I, I had, I want to say I had fun for my 30th birthday. We couldn't do a whole hell of a lot because I had an impending daughter. Uh, you know, so we, we wanted to do something that was fun, but we were also literally less than a month out from the due date of my eldest child, my eldest female child, as it were. Um, and so, yeah, I we went out and hit some bars and did some heavy duty karaoke in and yeah, it was good. It was good. Grand times, grand times. Do yeah, you, do you was... long for those grand times? Oh man, no. <laughs> well, I mean, yes, yes, and no. Uh, it's it's one of those things where it's there's an old song by a by a by a songster, uh, the the name of which is uh, Roger Whitaker, and he has a song uh, that where the verse is, "If I knew then what I know now." I thought I did, you know, somehow. If I could have the time again, I'd take the sunshine, leave the rain. Yeah. Well, now that that's depressing. <laughs> and this is when everybody should drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> Poor Kool-Aid. Everybody everybody gets, you know, like, that, that saying is going to, you know, continue to permeate society. Um, for who knows how long. And they did not drink Kool-Aid at, um, at Jonestown. They, they drank Flavorite, the Kool-Aid knockoff. <laughs> so they couldn't even bother to kill these people, you know, with a little bit of, you know, with a little bit of, uh, brand name, brand namerous. Oh, that definitely sounds like a culty church right there. I went to Google Flavorite because I'm unfamiliar with it. And apparently they have a great, they, they have a recipe for the best banana pudding ever. Oh, well, uh, uh, that's, that's interesting. Interesting. I, I, I would have thought that the Nabisco Nilla wafer recipe would be the best recipe ever. Well, see, I thought so, too. I thought so, too. But according to Urban Dictionary, Flavorite, in a sentence, is used as followed. Darquise is always trying different types of Linux. I heard Debian is her flavorite distro of the mouth. Oh, of the month, <laughs> not the mouth. Well, let's find out what distro is, because this is like how shit starts on worse. Urban Dictionary. Distro. A distro is a distribution source for independent publishing. I don't fucking get that. The distro of the month. Whatever. And it's awkward, so very, very awkward, we should move on. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, we should just... <laughs> All right, well, I, I do have a question, since I was... I, I, when I was putting the show together last week, I took some mm -hmm. time to re-listen multiple times the opening of the show to, you know, make sure it cut well and sounded good and all that jazz. Uh, because really, yes. it's the opening of the show that really sets the tone for the rest of the show, and... This is true. This is true. And I I do not envy the work you're going to have to do going into this week. I'm just going to cut it all out. This is where, like, the delete all for the first ten minutes comes in handy. Um, but... <laughs> Control but, X. Just got it. Exactly. But, um... I, I, I was curious, though, you you said, um, and, I, and I'm kind of paraphrasing this quote here, but that your wife was begging you 
as a Mother's Day gift, your wife was begging you for the seasons of Mama's family. Mm-hmm. And that she was the, the gift. She, of- wanted, she wanted the, the the series, the box set. Yeah. Yeah. It, like, was that always her – is that like her favorite show? I'm very curious only because I've never heard a grown woman or any woman for that matter – Actually, any guy who ever asked for the box set of Mama's Family, <laughs> I, I I don't know what it is, um, but yes, my wife um, has always had a cheesy love affair with Mama's Family. Um, I remember watching it when I was like seven, seven or eight, and thinking that it was. Okay, so even as a seven or eight year old, I recognized that this was not the greatest in television, but I loved the Carol Burnett show even at that age. And so I watched it mainly because I knew it was a spinoff of Carol Burnett. And um, and so I even with that nostalgic lens, I, you know, never really got into it. And so when I and I don't know what it is, the women that I marry like Mama's Family. My first wife loved Mama's Family, and she would put that shit on uh, and stay up late because naturally we, you know, didn't, didn't have the DVD yet when uh, I was first getting married, and so she would stay up very, very late and watch it on syndication or whatever, and. I'm just like, why, why? The show is not that good. And so then, of course, you know, divorce, whatever, move on in life, get married again. And then, sure enough, even my current wife's like, oh, I love this show. I want this show. Da, da, da. And she would try to watch it. And I'm like, this show is terrible. No, no, no. I like this show. So I pulled out the trump card. I pulled out the big guns. The big guns. I was like, well, for the record, you know, my first wife loved this show. Thinking that that would definitely be like, oh, well, God, I can't. Nope, nothing. Nothing deterred her. I don't care. I still like this show. Fuck. So, yeah. And, I mean, it's been something that at least for the last four or five years, she has casually dropped hints about. I saw it. It was a good deal. I couldn't pass it up, so I got it. Well, if this makes you feel any better, Matthew... Have you ever urban dictionaried your own name? No, I didn't think that that was a thing. I did that for you, and this is what <laughs> the name Matt, what it means in, in oh, urban okay. dictionary. Oh, okay. I'm like, I'm like, seriously, people literally like try and see, you know, like you can Google your full name. I thought you're trying to like put urban dictionary as like your full name in Urban Dictionary and see what happened. No, no, but no. no. So it's like in Urban Matt. Dictionary, put Matt. And it, this is what mm-hmm. it says. Just Matt <laughs> will make the best boyfriend or guy friend ever with their big brown eyes and heart-melting smile. It's hard not to fall for them. They are different in a beautiful way. Even though they've had a bad past, you'll never know it. They are really strong people and they change for the better. They are there when you need them, and they value their friendships. They like to look good and dress well, handsome and charming, very successful at life, make great dads, known to be players, but when they meet that special girl, they're sold. Mats come off as tough and solid, but deep down, their soft side comes out, and you see the sweet gentleman in them. They're not popular, but... (laughs) 
but not, <laughs> but not a loner either. Friends love them, and guys want to be him. They have a really laid-back attitude about themselves, but at the same time, they can be the life of the party. Even though they can be a jerk at times, they mean well, and are really the nicest guys ever. If you have a Matt, don't let him go. None other compares. Matt. Was Emily with four Ys uh, an ex of yours? (laughs) No. That's funny. Um, let's. I. I <laughs> the third definition. I the, the third one for Matt. Hashtag sex god, is a part of it. Outstanding. <laughs> well, the top definition for Tim is um, <laughs> a lot more concise. Sadly, top definition Tim. The following describes Tim: amazing, pyromaniac. Crazy, insane, loving, caring. A Tim cares about everyone around him, but gets mad sometimes when loved ones are threatened. He knows exactly what to say and devotes his life to people around him. He is amazing in every way, and he is a good person to have in your life. He has some depression problems, but that's why you need a Tim so you can help him. (laughs) That is the number one (laughs) definition. Who wrote that definition? We have to give him credit. Oh, uh, the plus-sized girly is the <laughs> Do you Do you have a plus-sized girly in your life? <laughs> that you may have tried to set on fire for some reason. <laughs> you know, he's a pyromaniac, but damn it, he's a great guy. <laughs> uh, oh, here we go. Six. This is you. Tim. Sixth entry. Tim. Tall. Dark-Haired Sexy Mofo by Chloe Boo. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. Uh, Well, take two on the opening didn't go much better. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh, You just want to go ahead and get into the news, sir? Probably should. Here we go, folks. It's the news. One news story here. One news story. Uh, do you want me to go ahead and burn it now? Because w- I'm hoping it'll we'll be able to talk about it. But I know you've got several pieces. So do you want me to go through mine now or, or do we want to trade off a bit? How about I get my deaths out of the way? Sounds good. Sounds good. Okay, two RIPs to kick off the news. Both of them are from Deadline.com. The first one here, Patricia Morrison dies... Glamorous movie star of the 1940s was 103. Her name is Bruce. Not her name is Bruce. We already know her name is Patricia Morrison, but this article was written by Bruce Herring, and it was published on May 20th. And it says this. Actress Patricia Morrison, who brought a touch of grace and style to even her anti-heroine film roles, has died at age 103. She passed at her L.A. home of natural causes. Morrison had a huge presence in films of the 40s and appeared in such classics as Song of Bernadette and Dress to Kill, opposite such stars as Basil Rathbone, Ray Milland, Spencer Tracy, and Catherine Hepburn, among many others. Sporting long flowing hair down to her hips, Morrison often was portrayed as the villain in her many roles. She also had an extensive Broadway career, appearing in the first staging of Kiss Me Kate, 
And with Yul Brenner in The King and I, Morrison was born in 1915 in New York and took acting classes at the neighborhood Playhouse, studied dance with Martha Graham, and made her Broadway debut at age 18 in, ni- in the 1933 comedy Growing Pains. Her big break came in 1938 when she starred in the operetta The Two Bouquets opposite Leo G. Carroll and future Kiss Me Kate co-star Fred Drake. Paramount came calling and signed her into a contract while naming her, quote, the Fire and Ice Girl, end quote. She made her film debut in Persons in Hiding in 1939. The article does go on from there. The second R.I.P., again from Deadline.com. Jimmy Nickerson dies, veteran Hollywood stuntman on Rocky, Raging Bull, and dozens of others. This here is written by David Robb and was published on May 18th. And quickly it says this, A 1985 inductee into the Hollywood Stuntman's Hall of Fame, Nickerson's long list of stunt credits includes Rocky, Rocky II, Raging Bull, Lethal Weapon, Gladiator, Waterworld, Fight Club, True Lies, Last Action Hero, Batman and Robin, Con Air, Volcano, Crimson Tide, Dante's Peaks, Star Trek, First Contact, Fantasy Island, Match, and Dynasty. Born on September 18, 1949 in Pittsburgh, Nickerson was seven when his family moved to San Fernando, California. There he began riding horses and was on the pro rodeo circuit by 15. He also found success as amateur lightweight boxer, racking up an 18-to-1 record by age 18. Those skills did serve him well as he began his stunt career on such TV westerns as Lancer, Gunsmoke, Bonanza, and The Big Valley. After working on fight scenes for the first two Rocky films and Raging Bull, Nickerson was Hollywood's go-to boxing coordinator. He later was the subject of a 1991 Sports Illustrated profile titled Tough Guys Do Dance, which focused on his work choreographing fight sequences, but stunt work was his calling, and he returned to it. The article does go on from there. Again, both of these RIPs were brought to you by Deadline.com. The first one, again, was Patricia Morrison Dies, glamorous movie star of the 1940s, was 103. And then finally, Jimmy Nickerson Dies, veteran Hollywood stuntman on Rocky, Raging Bull, and dozens of others. As always, definitely sad to hear of passings of that caliber. So my piece of news is from ScreenRant.com. By way of Cooper Hood, uh, this was uh, posted back on the 16th, so last Wednesday. And, um, yeah, this is interesting, though. It says, Disney considering letting John Lasseter return in limited role. Now, I'm, I, I don't normally do this, so I apologize. Please bear with me. I'm going to um, read the article out for you. Um, so, again, if you'd like to get further details and links, you know, for source material on it, uh, ScreenRant.com by way of Cooper Hood. Disney considering letting John Lasseter return in limited role. John Lasseter may return to Pixar after all, despite his sexual misconduct allegations. Near the end of 2017, it was announced that Pixar's CCO, John Lasseter, would be taking a leave of absence for six months. This decision was the direct result of him being accused of inappropriate touching in the workplace. In the wake of the hashtag MeToo and hashtag Time's Up movements, these reports were taken very seriously and added one more major Hollywood figure to these conversations. 
There hasn't been any sight or sound of Lassiter since his leave was announced, and all indications pointed towards his time at Pixar being finished. Even though Disney held a day of listening to discuss Lassiter's behavior to see what chance of return he has, it immediately looked like um, he wouldn't be returning in any capacity. However, with his sabbatical days away from finishing, it appears he could return after all. A new report from the Wall Street Journal reports that Disney has now considered bringing Lasseter back. If this is ultimately what the studio decides, Lasseter could potentially return with the same level of creative input, but with reduced power at the studio overall. There is no final decision just yet, and Wall Street Journal uh, stresses they could still decide to not bring him back at all or even restore his former position fully. The possibility of Disney and Pixar bringing Lasseter back in any capacity will undoubtedly be met with tons of pushback. It could be a PR nightmare of trying to explain such reasoning without potentially diminishing the work that the recent social movements have had. He admitting to, he admitted to these quote missteps and quote being true on some level after all and him returning would immediately signal that what he's done wasn't a fireable offense. Uh, let's see here. So, uh, it says Lasseter is a creative genius and responsible for such hits like Toy Story Monsters Inc. for Pixar as well as Frozen and Zootopia for Disney Animation but his actions aren't excusable both studios have continued to operate just fine in the months without Lasseter too with some of the more experienced people in both departments stepping up the DNA of each studio can still be maintained and pushed further without Lasseter and bringing him back immediately opens all future films up for further scrutiny with Lasseter's sabbatical ending Today, Monday, May 21st, it won't be long before some official decision is made one way or the other. Whatever Disney makes that decision, whenever Disney makes that decision publicly known, Screen Rant says that they'll let us know. Now, I haven't seen anything about it today, but um, here's kind of where I land on this thing. We 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 are. We are coming across a threshold here that I personally am not 100% comfortable with. And that threshold is who has the power. Now, I, th in no way, shape, or form is this meant to excuse any kind of behavior that is ill-toward or unprovoked or uh, meant in a demeaning fashion to anyone, for any reason. But we have someone like John Lasseter who fully owns up and says, you know, th this is me, this is how I behave, this is how I act, and in no way, shape, or form, and I'm clearly paraphrasing, in no way, shape, or form was I aware that I was, that I was um, acting as inappropriately as I was being uh, taken. And so he immediately apologized. He said, look, I, I'm, I'll step down. I'll step away, you know, take some time off. Let's cool off. Let me learn from this, whatever. And what we're, and so what we're seeing to a certain extent, um, also some, and, and to a lesser degree, what happened with, oh gosh, help me out, Tim, disaster artist, uh, Tommy Wiseau. Oh, 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 you're talking about uh, Franco. Thank you. Yes, James Franco. Where people are coming forward and saying, you know, hey, you mistreated me and, and you um, sexualized me and stuff like that. But then they come back again. 
so what we're having, what we have here are people who, yes, are in a position of power. But, and this is not, this is not directly related to John Lasseter. And I'm not trying to, again, please, please, please make sure I understand, I'm understood, not excusing any bad behavior. But what I'm, but what I'm starting to see are people who are, quote, in the position of power, um, not exercising their power to denigrate, but on the basis of genuine, from their end, genuine equality. You know, they ask, hey, this is what I'm doing, or hey, this is okay. And then they're told yes, or they're not told no. And then it's like, well, I didn't feel like I could say no because then, because they were the boss. But wait a minute. If it's, where, where does the onus fall? Who is responsible at that point? Is the person who is, quote, in power the one that has to try and figure all this out? Or is the person who is the subordinate supposed to speak up? If you've got a genuine mutual respect going on within the dynamic, then both should be happening. If one is overstepping the bounds, then the other should say so. And that's kind of where I'm getting a little frustrated because when you have someone, now I'm jumping in like Lassiter, who says, look, you know, I am in no way, shape or form condoning what I did. But I want to learn. I want to do what is right. And then it all stems from, well, he had the power. He was in charge. I can't say no. Well, where, where do we draw the line in that regard? Um, do we, do we, and that, I guess that's where I'm, that's where I'm like flustered because I'm not sure where, um, there, there, where the line is when it comes to, speaking up and you have someone who is clearly at least from the publicity perspective that the news reporting has trying to do the right thing um but then you also have people who are legitimately um upset and burdened and you know feeling emasculated or uh you know made to feel less than by the actions of someone like John Lasseter. And I don't know, Tim, what, where do you, you know, how do you sort that out? How do you, you know, get to the zero sum of equality in a situation like this? What did he do? Lots of things. He was, he was very, basically it boils down to he was a very, very touchy feely guy. Like okay. as in as in putting his hands on on a woman's leg or on a woman's knee, uh, rubbing a knee, hugs. Okay, uh, you know, I mean, very very touching. And again, not okay, not okay. You know, you need to. But Lasseter is coming from the perspective of this is just the kind of guy I am. It you know he's not putting it out there in a sexual manner. These people are taking it as such. And it, and as we know, it's not what you intend. It's how it was taken. But, you know, and, and so now you've got this weird 
balance where the person who is offended feels like they can't speak up because they're going to upset the person in power and maybe lose their job. But at the same time, if the person in power can legitimately say, no one ever said anything, well now, where, so where do we fall? Where, who's right? Who's wrong? You know, um, it doesn't excuse the action. Okay. Because the action was inappropriate, but at the same time, I, you know, um, I, I feel like you kind of have to consider the intent a little bit. Um, because while at the end of the day, the person who is the recipient of the unwanted advance can't negotiate intent. They can only negotiate what is physically happening to them. The person who is the offender might not have meant it that way. Yeah. And so we have this kind of thing. And then again, compounded by the fact that the offender is like on the level of John Lasseter, where they're, in, where they're in a position of power, you know, or like what happened to Franco, where this girl had signed up for a role that had nudity or whatever. And she felt like it was a slap in the face to get paid 200 bucks or whatever it was. But then she came back and did another job. Mm hmm. And she's still feeling demeaned. Well, why would you take another job if this guy's demeaning you? Well, I wouldn't get any other jobs if I don't take this job. Well, now, hang on a second. You're agreeing to a job. And so, but in the Lassiter situation, it's a bit different, obviously, because it's, you know, it's a culture kind of a deal. But Lassiter says, I, I never, never meant it that way. And that doesn't matter because it was still taken as such. It's hard. I just kind of did a quick Google search of what did John Lasseter do, and I came across this... What site was your article from? Screen Rant. Okay, so I came across the, the Vanity Fair article, and it said... So currently he's 60. He has five kids. So he's been married for, I, I assume, for a little while, for quite a while now. Um, he's been in animation I don't, for... I don't, know that he's, I don't know that he's ever had more than his one wife. I don't know off the top of my head, but okay. And he's been in animation for more than twenty years. Uh, he helped turn Pixar into what it is now, and he took over leadership of Disney Animation when Disney bought Pixar in two thousand and six. Going down to a couple of these accounts, and it says stuff like female, uh, and I'm quoting the article here, female employees described discomfort with Lasseter's physical affection, which included close hugs, kisses on the lips. Uh, if a woman failed to turn her face in time, after one of those hugs, we'd joke to each other, boxers or briefs, said one former Pixar employee. At a recording session, she described an encounter that led her to feel strange around her boss. She said, quote, he leaned into my monitor and whispered into my ear, you look so beautiful, that light in your eyes, end quote. The former Pixar employee said, another quote, it was the way a lover would talk to you. I remember him touching my back or leg or knee and just feeling ugh. And then we talked about the work, end quote. Then another employee talked about feeling like he had to always, that Laster had to always be entertained. I guess they were on their way somewhere, and uh, Laster asked the assistant or PA or whoever this person was to take him to a strip club, and Laster basically had them pay for the dances that he would he would receive. So I, it's 
it's fishy on multiple levels, but I think what really gets me feeling so uneasy towards him is that he has a wife and five kids. And it's Disney. You should not be acting like that. I mean, I'm not saying it would be different if, oh, he's coming from another company. Maybe he just didn't grow accustomed to those rules before Disney bought them. The wholesome Disney bought them out or bought Pixar out. But it was Pixar. Pixar's been making Disney Pixar films since the early 90s. So I don't know. I, I just feel wrong about seeing him come back. I also feel strange saying that also because I don't think Disney would fully back him. I mean, it's not like every movie he comes out with is an absolute hit. He did Cars 2. He did Cars 3. Both movies were not huge hits. We all know Cars 2 wasn't well-liked. I, and I'm, and he did the dinosaur. I mean, he worked on the dinosaur one. So it's it's not... We, there are many other Disney executives there that do excellent work that apparently aren't as creepy and strange as he is. But then again, it's difficult knowing who to trust. I mean, we don't know who these 10 people are that reached out to Vanity Fair or it was Hollywood Reporter. Apologies if I'm completely butching the history of this Vanity Fair article, but if we don't know who the people are, it's difficult to really take their side and assume that he is what what he's being described as. I don't think Disney, going back to my first point, I just don't think, I don't really know if Disney would allow him to come back because there are other people that could easily make good Disney Pixar movies, you know, like, and and I'm not discounting the fact that, um, you know, Lasseter is not, you know, is not the only guy or anything like that. I mean, I, I get that. But that's what I'm saying you is know, like, that's why I don't, I don't, I mean, I think uh, Disney would feel okay getting rid of him. But that's just it though. You have someone, I guess my, my, my thing is, is this is not, this is what makes the Lasseter case so compelling for me. Not because I want that, not because I want to pretend like nothing ever happened, not because I don't want him, uh, to have owned up for anything that he's done wrong, but because he came forward, he didn't fuck around. He didn't sit there and go, no, that wasn't me. He didn't start trying to put, you know, pin people under or sue people or NDRs and stuff like that. He literally came out and said, you know, holy shit. I have seriously fucked up and it doesn't matter that I didn't mean to. I did that. And so I'm going to step away. You guys got to figure out what's going on and I need to figure that out for myself as well. So, I mean, we, we don't want to, you, you don't want to send the wrong message, but what's the wrong message that someone can't actually that like, there's just never any coming back from doing something inappropriate that you can't learn from your mistakes that somehow, um, you know, offending someone regardless of intent is now the end. I mean, people have screwed up pretty severely in all sorts of different ways at all sorts of different levels of employment and life. And if we did this to everybody all the time, then, I mean, unemployment would be like 95%. Well, in some way, I can see why people would be bothered by him. If, in fact, all this is true. Again, I've never worked with the guy. I've never met the guy. I've never spoken with anybody who has 
you know, spent any long periods of time, I guess, working with him but that I know of. But it would be one thing if he was one of those people, if you were in a meeting, if you were sitting down next to him and talking, that maybe he'd kind of talk and lean over and just like, even after having a couple drinks, you just kind of put your hand on the shoulder or it's like you, you tap the person's back of the shoulder as you're talking about something, not being creepy or anything, just like, oh, hey, I'm telling this story. You know, we're both involved in the story and I'm kind of getting into it. And, you know, that's the reason why you're doing it. And I see a lot of people who, whenever they go in for a hug to say hello or goodbye to somebody, they do the little kiss on the side of the cheek. However, I have seen people purposefully touch people for no apparent reason just to see if they will receive anything in return. And I've also seen people go in for that hug and that kiss, and it might, from somebody else's point of view, look like he's only kissing the side of her cheek, but really, that person was trying to get the side of the lips or the side of the mouth just to see how the other person would react. And I mean, maybe they would have liked it. Again, and also if all these other accounts of him groping somebody at a party, it makes all these accounts feel that much more authentic. And it would be different if somebody actually came out. And again, I'm not as familiar with the whole John Laster thing as I probably should be. But if there is somebody with a name to their face that came out and said this actually happened, and therefore other people can verify it, I would say 100% he should not come back. Am I on board with you saying, like, well, he can learn his lesson? That's all just, like, still very creepy things that one should not, just should not do. And it sounds like he did it a lot. So a lot of his ducks don't really align all that well. I guess, but... And look, I... I, But in theory, I mean, I agree with you. I think if somebody messes up, to an extent... Of course, they decide to... But, I mean, then it's like, well, you did it so much. Right, but all of these... Of all of this stuff, like... um, So so back from November, when all this stuff started breaking, like, you look at The Hollywood Reporter, and all of these sources are, quote, anonymous, end quote. So right. it's not that the sources aren't telling the truth, but they're not... They're clearly not willing to put their name on it. And... All of these sources don't seem to indicate whether or not they ever flat out said, hey, don't do this. You know, um, this is, again, it's not victim blaming. It's not victim shaming. It is not saying that the advances were okay. But you have this, you have this dynamic where it's like somebody has to say something, you know, because even if it's egregious, some people just are that fucking thick, you know? And and so you kind of – and so that's where this thing is just so weird for me because I don't want to be like, well, this is, this is good behavior or how can you be so stupid as not to know? But at the same time – how can how can all these people know this? All these people have these inside jokes um, and or, or you know ways of dealing with and coping by calling it the Lassiter or whatever, and yet never say anything to anybody ever. Um, and if you did, then let's let that be. That should be the story. Oh no, it's not that we never said anything. It's that we did say something and nothing ever happened. Aha. Aha. Uh-huh. That that's something you know what you don't come back from. Um 
it's just, I mean, geez, I don't know. And I, you know, whatever. We're, we're clearly not going to solve this problem today. Unfortunately, a lot of companies and a lot of people not involved with any of this type of shenanigans were directly affected by uh, people boycotting a product, boycotting, you know, something that that person was related to, I guess. Right. I can't see people boycotting Disney. If he's involved with another Finding Nemo movie, people are going to go see it. I agree. And Pixar pro- Pixar projects are notoriously long. They're always gestating for like seven to eight years, typically. So even if he was fired t- today, which we haven't heard uh, that we know of, um, you know, he's going to have his name on projects for like the next six or seven years. Um, so, I, I mean, <laughs> by the time anyone would have, you know, but when it would matter and his name's gone, it's, you know, another decade's going to have passed. Right. And look, like I said, I know we're not going to solve it. And I know neither one of us for sure condones the behavior or anything. I just... I guess I'd like to see some different questions be asked, you know, then is it just as simple as that? Oh, fuck it. Blacklist them. Just, just blacklist them. And, you know, we'll never hear from them again. And in, and quite frankly, in cases of people like John Lasseter, you know, providing he was even re- remotely smart, smart with any of his money or investments, clearly he never needs to work another day in his life. Um, but the message that gets sent is one of, exile and we need to have we there needs to be some kind of light at the end of the tunnel for people who find themselves right you know rightly accused of these kinds of things um is there a way to come back you know i guess that i guess that's the that's the question i want to leave it with is there a way to come back and i just want to mention that the article that vanity fair article is an older article from November 21st of 2017. Same. My original article that I was tying into to try and find his statement from The Hollywood Reporter, also from the 21st of November. Yeah. So again, I know, I I mean, if anybody has come out, I wasn't aware of it. Next week's bonus segment. We're bringing back a bonus segment, folks. We're going to do a copycat throwdown. We're going to be comparing 1987's Overboard against 2018's Overboard. Uh, and without further ado, I guess it's time for the movies, is it not, sir? Movie it up. Here we go, folks. It's the movies. I almost said spiel on. <laughs> nice. I almost just ended the show right there. <laughs> So instead of ending the, the show, we've got uh, movies this week are Deadpool 2, Film Stars, Don't Die in Liverpool, and The Rachel Divide. Uh, so where would you like to start, sir? How about The Rachel Divide? This is one that you chose. It is. It is. I, I felt it was a pretty compelling documentary. Uh, and, well, here you go. Are you African-American? I don't, I don't understand the question. Are your parents, are they white? I, I, re, I re. 
convicted of double life has made international news. Rachel Dolezal has resigned her post as the head of the Spokane NAACP. Are you black? Yes. What? I know what other people say about me. All she has to do is just say she's white and then everything's fine. You can't tell my mom what to do. And you can't tell her how to think. You're not black. I was biologically born white. But I identify as black. But she's done a lot for the community. I'm benched from the game right now. Life goes on. Should I go in? No. What's up, guys? What's going on, man? How y'all doing, man? Would you please move? Where do you want me to park? Just move from out in front of my shop, now. Rachel is the epitome of white privilege, portraying a persona of the stereotype of a black woman. It's insulting. We will rise above this. Now we're having a national discussion about something called transracial. I don't know what's fact and what's fiction. There's clearly some complicated family dynamics at play here. We were just white people with skin conditions. There's so many layers to this. If somebody has hope, don't take that away from them. I like your style, but I don't feel that you share the struggle. Discrimination in stores, discrimination in schools. Self-hatred towards your skin, body shape. Not being the picture of beauty in American society. So yes, uh, Rachel Divide documentary, uh, Netflix documentary by filmmaker Laura Brownson. Uh, basically, it chronicles the 2015 uh, controversy surrounding Rachel Dolezal. Um, and she is what she considers to be a transracial person. Uh, in point of fact, she is a woman who um, is Caucasian by birth, Caucasian by biology and um, for whatever reason uh, that is not really and truly made abundantly clear um, she just simply identifies as African American she believes herself to be a black woman um, she lived her life that way to, to a degree becoming the president of the Spokane chapter of the NCAA and was ultimately exposed back in 2015. This, um, the, the documentary takes place primarily in 2016 and, uh, just kind of covers her life, the fallout, um, and how she chose to try and move on. I, really really liked this documentary i personally felt that it was extremely compelling to watch uh this woman and and kind of under try and not understand but at least attempt to get inside the head of someone who has truly, I truly believe, has the best intentions in her brain of wanting to exist and live as a person of color, not realizing that white is not the color that falls into this spectrum. Rachel Dolza has had a, had a, just a horrendous upbringing. And I think that 
plays into where she was at, but she basically made a choice to not just live as a black woman, but to actually become, present herself as a black woman. And this is not, you know, some kind of weird, you know, generational knockoff of Soul Man, you know, that, that, that horrible, horrible movie from the 80s. Um, but genuinely started to darken her skin, um, began to crimp her hair, uh, was able to, you know, start the weaving and wear the wigs and, um, kind of, you know, fit into this thing, became an actual professor at a university for African American studies. Um, even though she did it through art, was where she claimed her degree from. Um, she abandoned her original birth family in terms her her physical birth family, and took step took took the steps needed to adopt her siblings away her adopted siblings away from her birth family. And these adopted siblings were black. This an African American man and an African American woman. Um, and not co-opted them, but created this new life for herself. Um, it's, it's seriously compelling. And, and when you see what this woman has gone through, you both simultaneously feel bad for her, but at the same time, you, you can see that she's just not getting it. She just absolutely refuses to concede the point that what she is doing is offensive. And, I mean, it, it, it starts to make really interesting arguments. Um, something that is very, very, very loosely touched upon is her is her view of her identity and she believes herself to be she identifies right as african american and yet people are like no you are not Afri- you are not a black woman how dare you co-opt my race that is the you know most egregious form of cultural appropriation i've ever seen and yet she does this in a forum where in the same breath you have people who are like, but you can claim a gender. You can claim a sexuality, but you cannot claim a race. And so you start kind of seeing these weird questions that start to kind of alter arguments that have more to do than just race. But she doesn't seem to see that. She doesn't seem to acknowledge that. Um, and, and she's been interviewed by lots of different magazines, lots of different stuff. And, and it's really interesting to see how the educated African American community sees her. Um, she is not, um, very well accepted in that, in that regard. Um, you know, this, and, and yet the movie is compelling. I, uh, um, where I think it is the most compelling 
beyond her inability to just kind of get it to click as to what she is doing is offensive is seeing how she has kind of taken some very bad, bad mannerisms of her parents and is sowing those seeds into her own relationships with her children now, especially with her son. The biggest problem with this film, though, is that I felt that despite the areas of this movie that are very, this documentary that are very, very compelling and the arguments and social commentary that it's making, it takes a while for it to get there. And, and it starts to get there and then it kind of loses its way a little bit. Um, I think it probably could have been tightened up by about 10 or 12 minutes. And even still, I think this is just a really, really interesting documentary. I will give this, I give this one a 4.25 out of 5. I really like it. It meanders some, but this dual process of watching this family exist and how she treats her children and also how she tries to relate and justify what she's done. It's, I mean, it's just, it's fascinating to watch. So. 4.25 out of 5. What do you got there, Tim? I did a quick search of the feature film Soul Man that came out in 1986. Wow. I don't think I've actually ever heard of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah, it's uh it's a, I'm I'm surprised. This was supposed to be uh like a big huge thing for C Thomas Howell. It more or less destroyed his career. But the movie so. did great. <laughs> It made like mm-hmm. it on a budget of like four million bucks. It made like thirty five million. Yeah. That's crazy. I guess that's why uh, Julie uh, Julie Louis Dreyfus and James Earl Jones they don't include this in their list of films that they're most proud of. Oh yeah, in their filmographies. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but anyways, the Rachel Divide. I don't really know how to feel about this documentary. I thought it was very interesting, and if you know who Rachel is, if you're familiar about this woman, regardless of which way you lean towards her, watch the movie. I wasn't sure how I felt, and I still don't know how I felt (laughs) after watching the film. So maybe if you feel strongly one way or the other, uh, maybe you'll actually come out either the same way or maybe kind of seeing it in a different light so you'll get more out of it. Uh, I just thought that the movie did a good job at making her more in some way relatable or understanding and the beginning of the film, because they take the time to really show how ugly people were towards her. And then the last half of the, half of the film, they focus a lot on her and the choices that she makes. And you see a lot of her being a mother. And unfortunately the film takes place over the course of what a year, year and a half, maybe two years. Oh no, it's basically a year. I want to say it goes from, like, mid-2016 to, like, mid-2017. Because she goes from, like, starting to write a book to actually finishing the book. And then she goes from having a, you know, being pregnant to already having the kid. And then the kid being a month or so, uh, like, a month old, maybe. Right. So, I mean, it could have been a I mean, regardless, if it's a year, if it was two years or a year and a half. The movie, unfortunately, shows you a lot of radical things that doesn't help her case all that much. And the same could be said for those who consider what she has done radical. And what I mean is that 
it shows how she handles telling her story from the beginning, what led her down this path, I suppose. But then it shows her how she deals with the celebrity aspect. And unfortunately, as they're going through the celebrity phase during the second half, or more into the celebrity phase in the second half, you see how she uses social media. You see how she uses the spotlight. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. One of her sons, who again is black, asked her, Mom, why don't you, why why are you on social media? Why don't you just stop? Why are you posting this? Why are you tweeting this? Why are you posting a picture of your newborn child? You know people are going to come back and say hurtful things, and it's just only going to hurt you. Why why are you doing that? And after a long pause, she finally says, what, am I supposed to hide? Am I not supposed to use social media? Well, she does that a lot. She pauses a lot before she says anything. And she has this look on her face that could go either way. It either looks soul-crushing, or it looks like she's trying to come up with a passable answer. And what's important about a documentary is that it's not supposed to tell you how to think, but show you enough or expose you, the audience member, to enough so that you could, so that you can make a pretty, um, uh, so so that you, so that you, the audience, can get a, a kind of a, a better grasp on the subject or the person of Rachel in this case. And I don't think it really succeeded in in that way, and and to me that that's that's a, that's an issue. Now, is it a good documentary? Yes, it is. Is it an important documentary because of the subject matter? Yes, I think it is very important. But is it going to sway you in one direction or the other? No. And so I'm not just really sure how to how to feel about it. <laughs> <laughs> without getting, I guess, overly too political, which I, I don't really want to do. But um, because of that, I'm going to give this film a uh, a th- three out of five. I think it it, it might... Uh, I, yeah, I'm just going to stick with three without making up any more excuses, whether why it could possibly just be a 3.5. But yeah, I'll just say I liked it. It's a good documentary. Okay, very, very good. Where do you, you want to go from here? How about film stars don't die in Liverpool? All right, let's do it. Hey, you're the next door guy, right? Which makes you the girl next door. <laughs> What's her name? Gloria Graham. Big name in black and white films. Never heard of her. Won an Oscar too, if memory serves. Big fans of Gloria, we were. Me and your mum. Is this like a date, or...? What kind of a person hangs out in a joint where you're labelled on the lampshade, anyway? Could you take me to Liverpool? I could get better there. Bella could take care of me. Gloria, no! We never expected that Gloria Graham in our kitchen. Go to a hospital where no. they can treat you, where they can actually... No! I've got four kids. I don't need five. I'm not a kid! You are all I need. We all know what's up, love, with Gloria. I don't know what you want me to say. You can start with the truth. Tell me how I look. You look beautiful. 
I just want to go back to Liverpool. Say it again, Peter. Liverpool. Oh. Film stars Don't Die in Liverpool, 2017 biographical romantic drama film directed by Paul um, McGuigan. I think. Uh, stars Annette Benning and Jamie Bell, along with uh, appearances by Vanessa Redgrave, Julie Walters, Kenneth Cranham, Stephen Graham, Francis Barber, and Leanne Best. Uh, basically, this is uh, the story of a memoir uh, by Pete Turner. It tells his story of his romance, his uh, May-December romance with Gloria Graham in 1970s Liverpool as she struggles with breast cancer um so first of all if you don't think if you think you don't know who gloria graham is you do uh if you've ever seen the movie um uh, it's a wonderful life sorry had a <laughs> brain shut down for a moment she is the girl who looks at George and says, Oh, this, I just threw this on. So she's the blonde girl who, you know, who's kind of the, you know, the risque girl. That's Gloria Graham. So you've actually seen her before. Uh, she had a pretty cool, uh, career in the forties and fifties for the most part. She even won an Academy Award. Um, but due to her, um, being difficult to work with, among other things, she quickly faded from the limelight and ultimately passed away in the late 70s, whatever, um, it, you know, whatever. They cover it in the movie. So I I think that the movie itself is very, very well acted. Um, but I, I think that there... I don't think that the pacing of the film was set up right to back to back the relationship. It's not that the relationship wasn't compelling, it's that that they're they're trying to make the relationship compelling by putting it against her and the backdrop of her faded career. Instead of just letting a instead of just letting the relationship be what it is and have kind of the sparkle of, oh, wow, so this is what happened to, you know, whatever happened to. And so the film kind of struggles a bit going back and forth with with that concept. Um, maybe, I, I don't know, I never read the memoir, and so maybe the memoir isn't strong enough on its own, and that's why they're trying to have this backdrop for Annette Benning to pull from. I just kind of felt like there, there, there could have been more, but they, they just wanted to make it more compelling based on her Hollywood career than it really was. Um, if she had, if she had something that was more compelling to work with, in the latter part of her life that related to her career, I think that's what the movie should have been about as she struggled with her impending demise due to cancer and then utilizing her relationship with Peter Turner as the one thing that kept her grounded during the process. 
by focusing or attempting to focus primarily on the relationship and then do it the other way, you're kind of left wondering why, why is the relationship the thing? So it's a good movie. It's well acted. I just don't think that it was directed as well as it could have been. And certainly I'm not really happy with the editing or the pacing, but it's a, but it's a very decent movie, uh, nonetheless. So I give this one 3.75 out of five. What do you got there, Tim? This is a four-star movie for me. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Annette Benning was wonderful, as well as Jamie Bell. Tintin. That's Tintin. Both of them gave great performances. I really liked the relationship. It felt like there was there was something there. You know, there there was there was some kind of spark, honest spark that really drew the two of them together. I I, I liked it. Granted, I wasn't sure at first why Jamie Bell. Of course, he plays Peter Turner. I wasn't sure exactly what attracted him to Gloria Graham. Lust? Or it was because he actually thought that she was beautiful. That's the only thing in the setup I think this movie really needed to work on. However, the movie could have been a perfect film. The editing didn't bother me as much as you meant at first. I thought it was very dreamlike. It really captured that... Little fluffy feeling that one has within a relationship that almost feels like it shouldn't be real because everything is turning out too great. But it's that same fluffy feeling that doesn't ever last too long. And once that experience is over, it almost felt like it was a dream. Unfortunately, the movie doesn't really carry that through within the editing because the movie does become less surreal and more absolutely weighted down. It's not a happy movie. It's a sad movie. But it's still a love story. It's still a very effective love story. Because I cared about these two people. I, I, I mean, I wanted Peter Turner to be happy. I also wanted Gloria Graham to be incredibly happy. But you still never really get the feeling, was Gloria Graham ever really in love with the younger Peter Turner? Was she doing it because he was an adequate boy toy? Because he actually loved her and appreciated her for who and what she was, or for who she was, I guess? Did she want that honest support? That is why she had him around. You get hints of that, and maybe for some people that's enough. And I'm not saying I absolutely needed needed her to look at him and say, you know what, this is great, we absolutely need... But every time he's trying to be affectionate towards her or say something loving and caring, she always says the same kind of thing. What is love, really? If you think I love you, Peter, then isn't that enough? So you just really don't know where she's coming from. And it becomes frustrating. So you have that, and again, I would mention that the movie just puts on a lot of weight. You know, it puts on so much weight that when the film is over, it feels like the movie just couldn't handle it. And like a runner who just collapsed on the ground because they're just so exhausted, this is what that film does. It just feels like once the movie is over, they just throw all that weight off, and therefore it's not ever fully satisfying. And so that's why I give this film a 4 out of 5. It's still an excellent film, but it is definitely flawed. If you're a fan of Annette Benning or just great performances in general, please go check it out. One of my favorite parts of the film, 
is Vanessa Redgrave. Uh, she has this great little monologue where she's quoting Shakespeare and just how she does it. And within the context of the film and the scene itself, it's just, it's nice. It's nice to see her in that moment. So uh, check it out if you can. Right on, right on. Okay, well, then that leaves us with Deadpool 2. We getting close. You all know the drill. Intercept the convoy. Watch out for cable. Hit it! There's this kid. He's in trouble. Move or die. Pump the hate brakes, Thanos. I ain't letting Cable get to him, but I can't do this alone. We need backup. We're gonna form a super duper fucking group. It's time to get back on LinkedIn. Meet Bedlam. My name's Shatterstar. Domino. I'm Lucky. Luck isn't a superpower. It's certainly not very cinematic. Yes, it is. Let's meet in the middle and say no, it isn't. Fuck it. It's showtime. You're no fucking hero. You're just a clown. Dressed up as a sex toy. So dark. You sure you're not from the DC universe? Bring it on one night, Willie. Ooh. Yeah. Your bullets. They're really fast. And last but not least. Peter. Any power you want to tell us about? I don't, I don't have one. Um, I, I just saw the ad. You're in. All right. 2018 American superhero film. Of course, this is based on the Marvel character uh, Deadpool. And however, this is distributed through 20th Century Fox. And uh, yeah, so we're pretty much picking up shortly after the uh, events of the first film. And... Um, he uh has been well, i guess not shortly after the events of the first film it's been a year or two and uh he's doing his thing and unfortunately he misses his mark uh and this mark comes back and takes his revenge against him by killing vanessa um this of course drives deadpool to want to kill himself and try to kill himself and subsequently sends him on, uh, well, a mission of unexpected mercy from Deadpool. Because as he says at the beginning of the movie, it's a family movie. Um, yeah, this is one of those rare times that for me, a sequel literally built on its original foundation and is all the better for it. I think that this movie actually is better than Deadpool. I absolutely adored Deadpool. I gave it a four. I felt that there, it, there were some issues with it where they tried too hard and that they had pulled, um, pulled some punches in some of the CGI, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but that they really nailed the character. They really nailed the world. Uh, and they do the exact same thing from the get-go, but they doubled down. They actually got smarter with their dialogue. Um, the writing here really, really goes out of its way to do three things. Be funnier than it was the first time. Um, make the references to the real world and the movies that um, we all know and love. And keep things going for fans of the comics who get even additional bonus jokes 
um, all while actually creating something that allows the series itself to move forward in a way that, as crazy as it is, becomes organic by the end of the film. So, I mean, I, I literally was laughing from the minute the credits start playing all the way, um, uh, you know, through the oh shit juggernaut choir scene. It's, they just absolutely make sure to help you understand that Deadpool is a character that is so completely anti everything that he inadvertently becomes for whatever it is you need him to be for. Um, and the fact that they're not afraid to let the absurdity of it all drive the plot is also something that is really, really cool. Um, for example, uh, uh, Zazie Beats as Domino. I mean, her character is lucky. And she comes out and says, my superpower is luck. That's not a superpower. But by the end of the movie, you believe that it's a superpower. <laughs> um, it's, it, it's, I mean, God, it's just stuff like that. He understand that they just understand in the writing and the execution of the elements what it's meant to be. Now, I will, however, say that, um, Fire Fist, who is our um, inadvertent, wayward um, villain, I suppose. Um, he, they, they kind of should have called him Ham Fist, because <laughs> as uh, as as much as I felt for him as a character, uh, and the fact that you. Uh, maybe, maybe just because I'm a dude uh, and I was a kid who struggled um, with uh, with weight when I was younger, uh, with uh, you know certain areas of the family life not being as great as they could have been. I too had that bravado. I too came across thinking I was a badass, but being corny. So even in the way that I could relate to the character, I felt that it was just too much more often than not i think that he's a genuine actor i think that the character does end up um supporting itself within the realm of the story but he's kind of the weak link in the film um i think that he's got potential and i think that uh his, his name is julian dennison um he he i think he has potential and i think that the character definitely has places that it can go but um, if he keeps acting the way he acted in this one, uh, it may not be as good for him as we would hope. So given that he's kind of the inadvertent driving point of the movie and he's more corny and ham-fisted than fire-fisted, um, I give this one a 4.5 out of 5. All the other elements are there. All the other elements are on point absolutely enjoyed it thought it was funnier than the original and uh i think you will too 4.5 out of 5 bring us home there tim if you're a diehard fan of deadpool i maybe you'll enjoy it i don't know i wasn't looking forward to seeing the first deadpool but 
I went and saw it for the show, and it had great reviews, and you know, people thoroughly enjoyed it. And I was curious, very curious to see how this type of movie would have been handled. And I was surprised. I liked it. I enjoyed it. I think the reason why I didn't really care about Deadpool 2 as much was because of the marketing. There was so much marketing. There were so many trailers. There was so much of Ryan Reynolds promoting this movie as Deadpool. And a number of the jokes and the references that Deadpool made in the marketing are the same jokes and references that he makes in the movie Deadpool 2. So there is nothing really that surprising or funny that was entertaining. What I was entertained by for the whole run of the movie, I think, was mainly the look of it. I thought some of the story elements were very interesting, but it's significantly different from the first Deadpool. It does take itself seriously, even though Deadpool seems like a character. Again, I'm not super familiar with the comics, but it feels like I know enough after watching the marketing techniques and seeing how he acts and all in that way. This seems like a type of movie that he would not have been a part of. It just didn't feel right within the context of the Deadpool that I am familiar with. Maybe that shows how naive I am of the character. Maybe, but I mean, I don't care. <laughs> so I am going to land on 2.5 out of 5. If you're a fan of it, whatever, you'll get a kick out of it. I'm not going to change any of your minds at all. From a filmmaker's point of view, I think the look of it was really cool. The action was so-so. The narration and the quips, man, they really ruin moments. For example, they have this great montage where it's the start of the movie and it's Dolly Parton. And it's like, man, if you just let that entire fucking montage play out, that would have been a fantastic opening to the movie. It would have been hilarious. It would have been great. Why does he have to... Like, in the jokes he was making, the quips he was making or whatever, were not funny. Pops out of out of that uh, casket and he goes, ooh, don't go in there. It smells... It's like, okay. And, you know, another part of the movie when he's going into the prison, does do you have to make a sorting hat joke? A Harry Potter joke? So, I mean, there was just a lot of jokes that we've heard Ryan Reynolds joke about before. And other people joke about before. Therefore, it's not fresh. It's not funny. It's been there, done that. But it is visually entertaining. So I'll give the movie that. 2.5 out of 5. Again, it's just another superhero movie. And for the record, I saw no uh, trailers. I saw no advertising. So... Go go me, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and, and also being in L.A., so many billboards out here and on the radio. Oh, yeah, no, no, and... there's billboards out and stuff like that. But, yeah, I, um, I guess I have, you know, trained myself for movies that I really am looking forward to, to as much as humanly possible avoid media for it. Really, the only actual media that I saw was the night before I went and saw it. I saw it first thing Friday morning. So on Thursday afternoon, I saw that Ryan Reynolds had made an appearance on a Korean television program um, where he was dressed up as a unicorn and he sang uh, Tomorrow. Dressed up as a unicorn. And the, 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 the point of that show is famous people are supposed to get up there and sing with their, you know, in masks and the judges are supposed to guess who they are. Um, he, however, 
was just there as a as a bonus as for fun basically to promote the movie mm-hmm. and so um it was yeah so that was the only thing that i saw it was pretty interesting uh anyway yeah Okay, well then that brings us to the end of the movies. Uh, next week's movies are going to be Mohawk and I Kill Giants. And so now officially, I believe we are at the spiel, are we not, sir? Movie it up. <laughs> spiel on. <laughs> oh, Stewardess, I speak jive. Oh, good. He said that he's in great pain and he wants to know if you can help him. All right. Would you tell him to just relax and I'll be back as soon as I can with some medicine? Just hang loose, blood. She's going to catch up on the rebound on the med side. What it is, big mama? My mama didn't raise no dummies. I duck a rap. Cut me some slack, Jack. Chomp the one to help, chomp don't get the help. Say can't hang, say seven up. Jive ass dude don't got no brains in here. Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can, of course, come aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio, as well as track us down on the old SoundCloud. And don't forget to check us out on Patreon. And so until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Marina Baccarin, I get to say this. I love a good road trip, and I have been known to sing cheesy 80 songs at the top of my lungs on a windy road when no one can hear. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Madam, perhaps we should be going. Oh, farewell, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.